0: Bren Jackson of Glaziers from Austin on the show today. Hello, how are you?
1: Good, how are you? Nice
0: to have you here.
1: Nice to be here. Welcome to Texas.
0: So you grew up in San Antonio.
1: I did. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas girl through and through, and was there until I went to college up in D.C.
0: What was that like? What was the change like?
1: I traveled a lot growing up, and I don't think that I was necessarily sheltered from different cultures and food and and whatnot. But moving to D.C., as cliche as it sounds, it really is a melting pot. And it was really eye-opening to be in a city that had so many different Cultures like, all coming together.
0: All those different melted pots?
1: Yeah, all like, of them. I've never pots. seen so many.
0: <laughs> like, I didn't know it could be melted in that many ways. Like, handles melted, lids melted.
1: And all together, too. <laughs> it's just this big jumbled mess of melted pots.
0: What were your goals back then?
1: At the time, I really wanted to get into politics. That was what I thought I was destined to do.
0: Nothing will cure you of that, like, going to D.C., huh? That's
1: exactly what happened. With Literally within less than a semester. I went, absolutely not. This isn't for me. And there's nothing wrong with the people that this is for, but this isn't what I want to do. So I decided that maybe I would take that knowledge and those ideas and reasons for wanting to do that and pursue law. So that's what I actually did my first two years of college was pursue a pre-law degree.
0: What happened next?
1: The end of my sophomore year of college, I realized I didn't want to do that either. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I took a semester and moved to Madrid.
0: Oh, okay. Yes.
1: (laughs) Just decided that I wasn't figuring out where I wanted to go with my life being in D.C. So to go and do something totally different. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know the couple that I ended up staying with.
0: Did you speak Spanish? I guess because you grew up in Texas, right? Right. Right. (laughs) And
1: then you get to Spain, you realize you don't actually know any Spanish, but that changed quickly. The lady that I lived with in Spain, there was a rule that you couldn't speak English in her house unless you really needed to get something across and you couldn't say it in Spanish. So it was it was a pretty quick turnaround from knowing elementary Spanish to being almost fluent at the time. And I did a lot of traveling while I was in Spain too because. Why not?
0: Well, yeah, you're there. in Europe. It's easy. Get on the train.
1: Exactly. So I went over there, and I literally spent every dollar that I had. I was gone traveling.
0: Well, you know they don't take dollars. Just, <laughs> I, I don't right, know. Did. I don't know if you knew
1: that. No, I, did. I mean, maybe because the lady <laughs> didn't tell
0: you, because she didn't want to tell <laughs> you in she English. Did. She told she me was in Spanish.
1: Like, uh, uh, <laughs> no. Um, every all of the money <laughs> that I had. I spent um, traveling, eating, drinking, and I spent a lot of time in Madrid, but I spent a good amount of time traveling as well. And that was – it was incredible. I went to Marrakech and Istanbul. I went to France and Italy and Greece. I went everywhere that I possibly could. I landed back in JFK on my way home with $8 in my bank account. Dollars. And I came back and that's when, that's when I knew I'd always had an interest in food and wine and a passion for it. But coming back from that trip, that's when I knew the industry I needed to be in was, was something to do with food and with wine.
0: So you kind of got into the food and, and the wine bit in Europe.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I basically ate and drank my way through through those countries, well, I guess
0: it's better than the alternative, huh?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Starving myself, I, I've starved my way through
0: <laughs> most of Europe.
1: Um, I I most definitely spent more money than probably most young people do in Europe because I just literally ate and drank everything that I possibly could.
0: So you get back, and then what's your next move?
1: I had promised my parents that if I if they let me go take this trip to Europe, that I would come back and finish my degree. So I finished my degree, graduated with a pre-law degree from American and immediately moved to Austin and started at the Le Cordon Bleu.
0: And so why'd you pick Austin having come from San Antonio?
1: Honestly, the weather. I was supposed to leave DC on, I think it was December 21st and drive back to be home for the holidays and a big blizzard hit. And it had been the coldest winter I had ever experienced in DC. I just I'm a Texas girl. Uh, the cold was the cold was a lot. But I also wanted to be close to my family. And I got into the Cordon Bleu in Austin. So that was a big part of it too.
0: San Antonio's close enough to Austin that you can visit, but not so close that my parents
1: can show up on my doorstep at right. any time.
0: <laughs> there at every moment. Yeah, so exactly. It's, and it's probably younger in, it is. in Austin.
1: And coming from DC. San Antonio is growing in big ways as far as the food and wine industry is concerned. But when six years ago, I didn't want to be in San Antonio. There was nothing for me if I wanted to pursue this career that I had decided I wanted to be a part of.
0: What was Austin like at that time?
1: It was definitely the epicenter of food and wine and hospitality for Texas. There were restaurants opening up that growing up didn't even know existed. It was more like D.C. than any other city in Texas, culturally. And just the energy and the age of the people, not only because we have universities there, but also just because lots of young professionals and a lot of people that I knew were my age or close to my age. It was fun. There's a good energy in the city, dynamic, and and it's a lot of fun.
0: So you're at the Le Cordon Bleu, and what's that like for you?
1: I learned a lot. It's And it's an intense program. It's a one-year program where you, you're you there five days a week, six hours a day, cooking and learning, both classroom and hands-on experience. And I the knowledge I gained there was invaluable. And I wouldn't trade my time there for anything. I also did a stage for a bit at a restaurant in Austin. And I realized that being a chef, that wasn't for me. You've got to have really thick skin to be a chef. It's a tough, tough lifestyle. And that wasn't, I wasn't built for that. That wasn't what I was supposed to do. But my time there taught me so much. And I also met a chef that was teaching there and a lady who taught the wine class there I realized I actually knew nothing about wine. I thought I had started to learn a little bit about it when I lived in D.C. And as is the case with anything, right, you meet somebody who knows a lot and you realize you know nothing. And so they saw that I had a more invested interest in wine than any of the other students. So I ended up having long conversations with them and really Starting to study wine and get into that part of the industry more during my time at Le Cordon Bleu.
0: And where did that take you?
1: I graduated from there and I started working at a wine bar in downtown Austin called Mulberry. I had worked in restaurants since I was 15. Just on and off. Nothing serious and I when I started at Mulberry
0: By nothing serious, you mean like casual places on not- Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. That was
1: my college job.
0: Well, at least it wasn't like a knockoff, like Ruby Mondays, like the
1: Do they have those? <laughs> no,
0: but like the cheap like knockoff imitation place. It's <laughs> not even the real chain.
1: Actually, my last year in DC I worked at this super cute cafe called Open City. And my general manager became a really good friend of mine, and she's who first got me drinking wine. Oh, okay. And it wasn't a big wine program, but I would sit in with her and her sales reps and taste wine. And like I said, nothing special, nothing expensive, but that was my first glimpse into the industry. So go to Le Cordon Bleu. While I was there, I was frequenting this wine bar downtown called Mulberry, and I fell in love with the space, the energy, the employees, everything about it. And when I graduated from culinary school at about the same time, one of their bartenders decided to move to California and they had an opening. We were a staff of six, so turnover there was unheard of. And I was just thrilled. It was, it is 17 seats, two community tables and a little patio. And it was an absolute blast to work at high energy. Everybody that worked there loved food wanted to just be sponges when it came to learning about wine, and that was so contagious for me. We tasted once a week. The gentleman who was doing the wine program, Brian Phillips, was bringing in really cool stuff, and we were getting to taste it and learn about it, and I had never had an experience like that before. We still had the clientele that would come in, sit down, not even look at the menu and go, I'll have a glass of Malbec. Oh, okay. And there was actually a point while I was working there where we took Malbec off by the glass.
0: Well, at least they were asking for wine. Like it could have been, I'll have a cold beer. Right, Right,
1: exactly. Uh, We did get that too. Like I will have a Coors Light. And we had local beers on draft. And we'd say, well, I don't have that, but I have this for you instead. And so my first taste of grower champagne, my first taste of... Northern Rhone Syrah, those kinds of things all happened there. And I just became absolutely enamored. And one of the other people that I worked with there and I decided that we were going to sit down every Tuesday afternoon and we were going to study and we were going to blind taste. And this was something, we were really going to further our education. And so the gentleman, Brian, who was doing the wine list would join us occasionally and we would sit down every Tuesday and... That's where I learned the nuances between varietals in different regions and really understanding what it meant for wine to be from Piedmont. And that was the place I really learned about wine. There's, there are a lot of experiences in my life that got me there, but that's where I really started learning. After I'd been there just over a year –
0: It sounds like you really kind of took it up in a big way at a young age. What's that, like 22?
1: It was 22, right. And I think that was a really good time for me to take it up too because I knew this was an industry I wanted to be a part of, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do in it. And I think if I hadn't had found wine in the way that I did at that time, I might still be waiting tables with no... Focus about exactly where in the industry I wanted to go.
0: And people do that.
1: And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily, but I've always been a really driven, forward thinking person. And I don't, I really can't see myself being in that position, just knowing me. And so studying wine like that at that point was incredibly formative for me.
0: So, you're at Mulberry, and then what happens?
1: The gentleman who was putting together the wine list and helping me study and and learn was at a tasting, a big tasting with Glacier Distributor. And Craig Collins...
0: Yeah, from Elm?
1: Yes. Goes up to Brian, and they're chatting, and I don't obviously know how the conversation goes, but essentially he says... Glaziers is hiring entry-level sales positions. If you know anybody who would be good for that, send their resume along. That same night, Brian calls me and he says, do you have a resume? I said, yeah, I need to update it, but I do have one. And he goes, Glaziers is hiring sales reps. I think you would be great. And I think if you're going to move forward in this industry, you need to get out from behind the bar. Oh, that was and, nice
0: of him to kind of like take you under his wing that way.
1: It was to this day. I always remind him when I see him about that incident. And
0: he. You're like, you're the asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got me into this.
1: <laughs> Every time it's I'm of in you. traffic, I'm like, Brian. No. No. And so um, I sent him my resume that night. And of course, I'm on bartender time. So the next morning, I wake up at,
0: what, like 10, 11? <laughs> and I have a 10. missed <laughs> – No way you wake up at 10. No, I
1: did. I remember because I woke up at 10 or 11 and not to get up but probably just kind of arousing myself. And I look at my phone and I had a missed call from 7.30 in the morning from a number I didn't recognize. So I listen to the voicemail and it's a manager from Glacier's asking me if I can have lunch that day. And it's like 10 or 11 o'clock. I call him back and he's like, yeah, yeah, can you meet at noon? Yep, just like jump out of bed, get ready, go, sit down at lunch to meet with him. We start talking about the position. He's interviewing me. I have no idea what's going on or what I'm getting myself into. He drank several glasses of wine. I ordered one and barely drank it because I, at this point I don't know what's appropriate or not. And, of course, I don't know what wines on the list are from his company. Right, sure. So I don't even know what. I should order. I ordered Glazer wine without even See, knowing See, that's it a was real meant blind to tasting, be, huh? Um, Dr. Losen Riesling. I'll never forget.
0: Ernie, coming through for you.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. 4 days later, they offered me a job on their team and I literally jumped in headfirst.
0: What did they ask in the interview? I mean, what what is it important to them if you're going to work for Glazers?
1: I thought All of the interviews would be very focused on my knowledge and education. You're coming with the flashcards and stuff. Exactly. Look at all of this stuff (laughs) that I've done. Right. I had just passed my first level with the Court of Masters. So I'm playing this up. And he wants to know how I interact with people and more about my personality than anything else. So I was worried because I had no sales experience and I realized now that I shouldn't have been. I'm a personable person. That's what I should have played up. But it ended up working out, so it doesn't matter.
0: And what's Glazers like as a company? What did it feel like at the beginning and what's it like now that you've been there for a few years?
1: At the beginning, it felt overwhelming. I was When I started, I was working for a division that had a huge and still that's a huge portfolio of wines and wines from all over the world and i was coming from a wine bar that had 150 bottles on the list maybe when we were full up and so it felt really overwhelming because i didn't know i didn't know the job i didn't know this part of the industry i didn't know the portfolio And I'm the type of person that wants to be successful and wants to do well pretty quickly right off the bat. And there was a big learning curve for me. But it was fun because it was something different. And I was 23 at the time. So I had the energy and the time to dedicate to it. This is the job. Oh, you
0: could just go all in.
1: Yes, exactly. I had nothing holding me back. I could be out every night and I didn't have any obligation necessarily back home or in any other regard. So I dove right in and fell in love right away.
0: What were your duties? Like what was a normal day for you at the start?
1: Honestly, a normal day for me at the start is fairly similar still to what I do now. It was and is spending time with buyers, smalliers, chefs, restaurateurs, spending time in in restaurants and in bars, and not that, the worst, it's the best actually, and that's what I love to do in my free time as well. So when people talk about how many hours in a week I work, it's a difficult question to answer because are we talking about just when I'm making formal sales calls or answering emails, or are we also talking about going to dinner, going to happy hour, having beers with your buyer one night, right? So, I mean, I suppose you could technically call that work, but it doesn't feel that way. And that's something that I really love about what I do and have loved about this from the beginning.
0: Sounds like restaurants weren't a big part of your life as a kid, and so it's probably exotic for you to go out a lot.
1: It was. We ate at home all the time growing up. It was really special to be able to go out to eat and in fact, even all of my birthday parties were at home. And growing up, I remember that being not ideal because you want to go to the theme park or...
0: Oh, I, I thought because you didn't want to get older. You're like, oh. Screw well, this.
1: Yes. No. Um, I'm
0: not coming home and that way I won't get older. I'm staying out all night.
1: Yes. That's how it works, right? If you just keep staying out I mean, all night, you'll never get if all older. your birthdays
0: that are at home. Maybe you start to wonder. You know?
1: Exactly. No. So when I really fell in love with restaurants was in college, and to be able to have a job now where I get to still be in them all the time and work with them all the time, it's it's really perfect.
0: And how long have you worked for Glazers?
1: I started with them November of two thousand and eleven.
0: So that's four years, right? Yes. I mean, almost. Pretty much. And what's Glazer's like? I mean, uh, to set the scene a little bit.
1: It's one of the two biggest distributors in Texas, and we also are in many other states around the country. It's a company that has a very large and a very diverse portfolio. They also distribute spirits as well as wine. That's that's something that I've never been a part of. I've never sold spirits. I've only ever dealt with wine.
0: And who made that decision? Did you tell them that you wanted to do wine?
1: It happened organically, honestly. I have never worked with spirits. In fact, I've never worked behind an actual bar. The extent of my cocktail making at home is putting Lillet on the rocks. That's that's about it. So I, being with glaciers and only working with wine happened organically. When I started... I was in a position where I was only selling to restaurants and I was only selling wine. And it stayed that way until I moved into the division that I'm currently in, which only sells wine as well. And that's where my knowledge is. That's where my experience is.
0: But do you think they looked at you and said, we need some more people who know about wine. Seems like this wine thing's kind of catching on a little bit more. I mean, is that possible? Right about the time you're there that Austin's developing more of a wine scene, they're like, oh, well, maybe we need some.
1: That could have happened when I first interviewed with Glaciers and came on, but I think it more so happened when I moved into the fine wine division.
0: So what's the difference?
1: It's a different portfolio. The fine wine division, it's a smaller book. It's not necessarily a higher-end book because we still have good value wines, but it's a little more boutique with more of a focus on – family-run, or smaller wineries.
0: And what's the Austin market like today? I mean, who buys wine from you?
1: The Austin wine market is, in my opinion, one of the main drivers for how the wine industry in Texas is growing as a whole. There are smart, educated, young buyers who are buying wines and interested in wines that you didn't, really see in texas at all 10 years ago and even not as much five years ago and there's still a little bit of a struggle to get some of these cool hip newer wines and brands in to texas because it's for those types of wine it's still a new market but
0: oh so the people themselves selling you the wine are like uh i don't know Maybe we don't sell to Texas. And then you have to be like, no, please sell to Texas.
1: That happens, absolutely. Thankfully, a lot of the people, most of the people who are buying these wines and interested in these wines in our industry also have connections to the winemakers, the winery owners, the importers, because of things like Texom. And just because they're traveling and they're studying and they're networking and...
0: Well, it also seems like a lot of buyers have worked in distribution at one time or another.
1: There's definitely good overlap between all the different parts of the industry within Austin, but we also are a wine community where we're all growing, we're all learning, and we all want to be successful. So if we want something to happen, if we want to get a wine in or do something exciting or new or different... And you have a connection to somebody else who can help you or get you in the door somewhere. We're all working together to make that happen because we're all excited and passionate about what's happening. And the only way to make these kinds of strides for Texas and within what we're doing individually is to do it together.
0: So what's the advantage of spending the time to bring in new things? As an example, if you were a restaurant buyer and you wanted to spend like a few months doing the groundwork to bring in some wines that weren't in the state, what's the advantage to you as a buyer when there's already a fair amount of wine in the state? Are the customers asking for new things or does it give you a chance to stand out from the restaurants down the street or what makes it better?
1: I think it's a little bit of both of the things that you said. I don't know that there's a huge amount of customers that are asking for specific new things, but you definitely see people getting excited about trying new things. So even if they don't know exactly what to ask for or exactly what they want to be brought in, they're definitely excited to try new things and they trust these buyers too the sommeliers in Austin are known in the community, and people will go to them and trust them to say, this is what you usually drink, or I know this is what you like. I have this new cool thing. You should try it. And people are open to that. And then also, the more diverse your list is, or the the more opportunities you give not only your customer base, but your friends in the industry and other sommeliers to try these things you're bringing in, the more everybody grows together as well. So you're enhancing your list and your program, but you're also doing the same thing to the city.
0: So there's curiosity about the unknown amongst the buyers. In the sommelier community, there's people who would like to try things that they haven't had a chance to try, maybe ever.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and put them on their list for other people to try.
0: Where do you think that curiosity comes from? Do they see the things on Instagram? Do they hear about the winery in books? I mean, I guess you'd have to know about a wine to ask for it. So,
1: Social media is huge for that. And you talk about seeing photos of wines on Instagram. And I feel like I see a new bottle all the time. Uh, somebody's posted a photo. But I also then see the same 10 wines as well on all Instagram. the time all yeah. the time right yeah. and i could list them for but it, okay.
0: i would imagine that if one of those 10 was not a wine i had in my state i might really want it
1: a lot of them aren't
0: right and that's probably what happens yes right exactly. So like <laughs> i keep seeing this
1: i keep seeing Sandlands. why isn't it in texas right.
0: i guess at some point you probably bump up against quantity issues there's of some course point where somebody says well we only made 600 cases and there's no wine
1: Well, and that happens not only with domestic wines, but with imported wines as well. I had a conversation recently with a buyer who was upset about not getting any Ramane this year. And we had to say, we literally got a case. A case. Nobody got a significant amount of this wine. You're literally handing restaurant people a bottle or two.
0: Well, you could have given them the case, too. Like, you could have given them the cardboard, right? Could have been like hey everyone else got a I'm bottle but we saved really this cardboard sure it comes box in a wood for you. box
1: <laughs> Yes I could have I'm uh, not
0: fancy but the wines I drink did. sometimes are
1: And I might as well have just smacked that person across the face with the wood box if I had handed it to them
0: <laughs> but I mean a lot of times I think in many states, Distributors find it kind of annoying when the buyer comes and it's like, Yeah, I like the thousand wines that you have. Those are all fine, but can you bring in the three that you don't have? But right. it sounds like, you know, you work for a distributor. I don't see you pissed off. Like you're not like, fuck those buyers.
1: No, and I, I also have found that this is 110% a relationship business. So not only does my success somewhat depend on the buyers I work with, but it also, they need us to be able to sell them Davisat and Ramane to build up their lists. There are a million wines out there. You can build a list with anybody's wines. But when you have relationships with your buyers, when they have a good relationship with you and you're able to offer them what you have, it makes a big difference.
0: So you're a little bit younger, and I think a lot of times... When I would, you know, compared to me, old man, father time. (laughs) Right. So a lot of times when I would look at you, I would think, oh, that's probably somebody who works as a buyer. You know, that's probably somebody who works in a restaurant. You know, because I sometimes think of distribution people as a little bit older, a little bit different look. Maybe that's just New York. I don't know.
1: Well, first of all, I'm a klutz. So being a sommelier or a server in a restaurant really was not a good career path for me.
0: Good to realize that.
1: Right, exactly. Knocking over glasses and...
0: You were like, we had a case of Raminate. Now we have <laughs> 11 bottles. Right.
1: I remember one instance in particular. One of our most regular couples came in for their 10-year wedding anniversary. And they ordered really nice bottle of champagne. And the cork hit the ceiling and the champagne spilled out all over the bottle. And
0: That's not supposed to happen. N- no.
1: And I like having... I like being able to work literally in restaurants and with chefs and with buyers and with a diverse portfolio of wines, but to be able to constantly be in a different location and every day is different. And that is the case in restaurants too, of course, because you've got different p- people coming in every night, but
0: but table three isn't like some table like three is there. always there. Yeah.
1: Right. And I see different restaurants all the time. And even the places that I see once a week, twice a week, or more, we're tasting different wines. We're talking about something different. And that constant movement, that kind of energy, that's what keeps me going. That's what fuels me.
0: So you're probably on a a fine wine team, right? There's probably other people.
1: There's four of us on my team for on-premise. And then there's a a group of guys that do all the retail as well.
0: So how many of those people are under 30?
1: Under 30? I'm the only one.
0: And then for the buyers, how many of them are over 40?
1: Not many. And if I were to break it down and actually find out people's ages and more than a few (laughs) were over 40, they don't look it yet so good for them.
0: Essentially a young person's business on the buying side.
1: As far as Austin goes, absolutely.
0: But on the sell side, there's some older people who've probably been doing it for a while. Right.
1: There's a gentleman on my team who's been doing this, I would guess, 20 years or more.
0: But being younger, you can maybe talk about the same movies with the buyers and kind of be young together with the buyers? In a
1: way, uh, but it's still still feels like a young industry. So even the people who have been doing it a long time have a certain energy about them.
0: And it sounds like retail's less fun for you and you have less of those accounts.
1: It's true. I will always be an on-premise girl. I want to be in restaurants. I want to be in bars. That's where I do best. That's where I thrive. That's where I have the most fun, honestly. And I sell wine for a living. If I'm not having fun, I'm doing something wrong. So, putting myself in an environment where I'm excited and I'm having fun and I'm therefore professionally thriving. That's important.
0: Would you say that retail and restaurants are somewhat similar in terms of the buyers and what they're interested in? Are retailers in Austin looking to bring in new stuff all the time and talking to you about, or talking to their, your counterparts about, you know, finding new things or, is it more that the innovations driven by the restaurant buyers?
1: I definitely think that the majority of the innovation in Austin is being run by the restaurants.
0: What about chains? Are the buyers who are really doing interesting work, are they part of groups? And are the buyers in retail mostly retail groups? Or are these individual outlets and individual restaurants?
1: The most interesting retail shops are independent. They're owned by a couple of people who are also running the shop and making the decisions. The idea of restaurant groups has actually been a fairly new thing in Austin recently. The Elm group that Craig Collins does the buying for, McGuire Mormon Hospitality that June Rodial does the buying for, Parkside Projects as well is a group that's growing. They are about to open their fourth restaurant that is actually new. When I moved to Austin, it was these independent restaurants. And now you're seeing that these groups come together because they had a successful concept. And so they're building on that. But there's still, there's still lots of independent restaurants as well.
0: Has the development of groups led to more sommelier and buying gigs? Do you see people who are like, yeah, well, the reason I have enough work to do. The reason that they invested in my salaries is because there's three restaurants. And yes. One of them just serves breakfast, but we do some wines at the other two, like that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. What's also been cool to see is these sommeliers are buying for multiple restaurants. They're buying for a restaurant group. And so as a sales rep, I'm getting to work with them in a more diverse way than I would if they were just buying for one restaurant
0: Because they're calling you and saying, I need some stuff for the French place. I need some stuff for the Italian place.
1: Exactly. And, but they're still excited about the restaurants themselves. So they're still working the floor. You know, they might be buying for multiple restaurants, but you will see them Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, serving bottles of wine, talking to people about wine, being at tables. And that's also really fun to see. Because it really shows their passion for what they're doing as opposed to just putting a list together and then telling their staff, good luck, have fun with it. They're invested in what they're doing completely.
0: And what's selling in Austin? What's doing really well?
1: There will always, because we're in Texas, there will always be a market for your steakhouse wines, of course. But what we're seeing... And really, just in the last three to five years, is a trend towards more drinkable, approachable wines. Rosé has blown up in a big way, which has been a lot of fun to see. The idea of summer of Riesling really kicked off this year as well. People are realizing, first of all, it's not called Riesling. In case you were wondering, I wasn't sure if that was something you knew. And it's not all sweet. So that was really fun to see this summer too. See people's eyes open up about the kinds of wines that we as sommeliers drink all the time. And so sometimes I'm guilty of it. I forget that people don't know about them or drink them on the regular. Another wonderful thing to see with these buyers is their focus on education. Restaurants are doing not instead of just doing once a week, everybody comes and we're going to taste this new wine I just put on the list. It's once a week, we're going to sit down for an hour or two hours and we're going to talk about a region, we're going to talk about a style. And I'm really focusing on that education for your staff so that not only are they able to answer questions for tables, but having that enthusiasm table side, I know is a big factor in really enhancing the guest experience
0: So, how many of those buyers do you think there really are who are investing that kind of time in education like how many people is that
1: in austin less than a dozen but you also have to remember that some of these buyers are with restaurant groups
0: so they're buying from multiple restaurants right and how many restaurants would you look around Austin and be like, wow, serious wine list. How many of those are there?
1: 15, 20.
0: Okay, so it's roughly the same as the number of buyers if you right. figure that some of them have multiple places.
1: think that balance is still necessary in Austin because there is still a clientele that wants Malbec with oysters, wants Cabernet with sushi, thinks Riesling is only super sweet. But the buyers in Austin are really smart. And so they're still buying for the concept and the clientele more than they are buying for themselves.
0: So who is the wine consumer in Austin? Have you seen it change a lot over the four years? There
1: is definitely a younger community that's buying wine. Whereas when I first started working at wine bars and selling wine, people my age and even people a few years older weren't buying wine and if they were they were buying whatever was the cheapest or the most familiar they had one bottle that they always bought at the grocery store and now i'm seeing a shift where this younger community is excited to try different things and willing to spend maybe a little bit more money and try something that they've never had before
0: so is the economic outlook like pretty decent in texas then Does it feel like younger people go out and spend money on drinks and have wine and stuff?
1: That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing friends of mine who three, four, five years ago were just going to bars and ordering Coors Light and vodka sodas that are now taking girls out on dates to these really nice restaurants and ordering bottles of cool wine and more expensive wine. There's been a shift as well from seeing a younger community ordering only $30, $40 bottles of wine to now you're seeing the sweet spot is $60 to $80, honestly. And whether that is an economic shift, and in some ways I suppose it has to be, right? But it's also a shift in curiosity and knowledge. And going back when we talked earlier about education, just people knowing more about wine. And instead of saying, I'm going to – order this $32 bottle of Malbec because it's cheap and I know what Malbec is, saying, I've heard about this other wine, let's try it. Or talking to their sommelier, talking to their server and asking what they're excited about or what they think is cool and what's new. And, or even, this is what we're going to eat, what should we drink with it? It's a young city. You know, the University of Texas is right smack dab in the middle of Austin. It's the biggest state university.
0: Does that keep it young in terms of freshmen coming in every year?
1: Yeah, it definitely keeps the average age of an Austin resident down. But Austin as a city is young as well.
0: So in a restaurant, is it the college kids that come in? Is it the graduate students that come in? Or is it the college students' parents who come in? Who comes in to dine at a a fancy restaurant?
1: It's not the college students, unless they're with their parents that are visiting them from out of town. It's the young professionals. And some of the clientele are also people that are driving in from the suburbs of Austin. But for the most part, it's the young professionals that are living in central Austin that are going out and eating out all the time.
0: And how do you think Austin compares to, say, Houston or Dallas?
1: Dallas is still a big oil town. It's a lot of steakhouses. It's a lot of money. That culture is more alive and well in Dallas than it is in Austin for sure. Houston is shifting in the way that Austin has been going as well. So you're seeing these really cool new restaurants pop up and you're seeing really cool wine lists as well, which has been fun to see because the people working in Houston and the people working in Austin are coming together and trying to bring these wines that have never been in Texas before in to Texas. Like we talked about earlier, if they aren't working together to bring these wines in, there's still this idea in the wine industry that Texas isn't worth sending the wines to as compared to New York, Chicago, San Francisco.
0: So it's not just the buyers and their distributors working together, but you're saying that the buyers work together. You're saying that the buyer in Houston and the buyer in Austin works together.
1: Oh, absolutely. And whether that be to contact people and use their connections and their influence to bring those wines in, or to say, we really want this wine here, let's bring in a case and we'll split it. And that I see that happening a lot, especially with higher end wines or with really highly allocated wines. Instead of all of it going to one person or to one city saying we're going to send some of it to Houston and some of it to Austin.
0: So actually dividing a case between two cities.
1: Yeah, that happens.
0: And that probably allows both of those buyers to have a wine that's different than everyone else in their town, but they're in different towns.
1: Exactly. And it also spreads the influence of whatever winery or importer they're using to bring that in across the state. So that they're not saying, well, it's just Austin that's bringing these types of wines in, or it's just Houston that's bringing these types of wines in. It's saying Texas is bringing this kind of stuff in and putting it on their list and selling it.
0: And Glaciers is a Texas-wide distributor. It's not like you just work in Austin.
1: No, no, no. We've got offices all over the state. Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, West Texas.
0: Do you see things in Austin that you think might take off? Where you're like, oh, I see a couple people putting those kinds of wines on the list, whatever they might be. Maybe in the next few years, that'll be a big thing.
1: In the way that I've seen rosé blow up in the market and... I've seen even Syrah, which still has a long way to go. I think that the Loire as a whole is something that people are going to discover and really latch onto. hopefully at least in the near future. Sauvignon Blanc is something that's drank regularly in Texas. It's cold, it's crisp, it's easy drinking, people know it. And Sancerre is something that now people are realizing is a different expression of this varietal that they've known and loved for a long time. Same with Cabernet Franc being a grape that goes well with a lot of the cuisine that Texas is doing, a lot of game, a lot of meat, but tends to be a little lighter and a little more elegant than these big, bold reds that they're used to. And so you're seeing lists that have... Loire sections on them that have Chenin Blanc, Sancerre, Cabernet Franc, all sorts of wines and people are discovering this region in ways that they never have before and it's allowing buyers to to buy these wines.
0: Do you find that people in Austin are varietally focused? that they think about a wine as the grape variety more readily than they think about it as the place?
1: Absolutely, and that's because there's been such a focus on domestic wine in Texas. Cabernet from Napa, Malbec from Argentina, and so people are ordering. My grandfather still sits down in a restaurant and says, I'll have a glass of your house Chardonnay. Whether they have a house wine or Chardonnay at all, he doesn't look at the wine list. My grandmother, house Merlot. So the two of them, I know exactly what they want. People are still sitting down and ordering by varietal, and a lot of people are still sitting down and not even looking at the wine list, assuming that you have a Pinot Grigio Sauvignon Blanc Chardonnay Cabernet Malbec on your list. And if they just say whichever of those is their poison, you will bring it to them, and it will be under $10 for the glass, and they don't have to think about it, and they'll be happy.
0: How much of the wine sales are really based on price point and how much is the move towards alternative regions a price point driven move?
1: What's been exciting to see is people putting wines on their by the glass specifically menus that are the price point that the consumer is looking for but not the varietal that they're looking for. So for example, we are going to put Muscadet and Chenin Blanc on for 9 to $11 a glass. You want Chardonnay? I'll give you a glass of Chardonnay. You have to pay $17 for it. You want Cabernet? You've got to pay $18 for it, but I can offer you something that you've maybe never heard of or just have never tried at a lower price point in order to entice the consumer into trying something different. It doesn't always work, but when I've seen it work, it's exciting. I've seen Chardonnay drinkers turned on to Suave. I've seen Cabernet drinkers turned on to Syrah. My mother swore she hated Syrah. I don't know where that idea came from with her.
0: Well, probably Yellowtail. That's probably, she was probably, probably like, I'm or, not. Yeah, exa- That's not me.
1: No, and we sat down to have a steak dinner in Austin probably about two years ago, and I told the sommelier at the restaurant that my mother hated Syrah, but I love Syrah with steak. So I said, this is the bottle I want us to drink with dinner. Will you decant it away from the table, just bring the decanter over, pour us each a glass, and then walk away.
0: So you're not a very nice person, basically. That's what you're trying to say from this story. That's I the- like
1: to have people think that I am, but maybe not in this case. So I tell my mom that I've ordered the perfect bottle for a steak dinner. And it was jamais Cote Roti. And my mom does the swirl and the sniff and takes a sip. And she goes, oh, this is really good. And I... I'm a very terrible liar. So the whole time I've got this big, goofy grin on my face, and she looks at me, and she's like, what is going on? And I go, it's Syrah. It's Syrah. And those moments, and even though it was with my mom, and so there was obviously this inherent level of trust, but I hear stories like that from buyers, or I hear friends tell me about experiences like that, friends that aren't in the wine industry, and Those stories are exciting. And at the same time, I hear about wine buyers who decide that they're going to only put high-acid, low-alcohol wines on there by the glass list, and it's an abysmal failure. And so the balance between understanding your clientele and the type of restaurant that you're buying for and trying to put together a list that has a sense of identity and makes you excited and proud, that's still very much necessary in Austin. You can't just put a super geeky, weird list together. But you can also put souvenir on your list and it will sell because there's the people that know about it and will buy it. But if you've got an educated staff, there's still a clientele that will buy it based on a recommendation or an explanation from their server.
0: And how is Austin laid out? Are the restaurants mostly near each other or are they somewhat dispersed or geographically all over the place? Or?
1: The majority of Austin restaurants are all within a 15-minute drive of each other, depending on traffic, of course. But I have a fairly wide-ranging route as far as my accounts go. And yet I can, I budget 15 minutes to get from account to account. And sometimes it's less than that.
0: What about just drinking establishments? A lot of times I feel like when you've talked about good wine lists, you've talked about wines that go with the food, but are there just kind of like wine bars that offer good wine and maybe no food or very little food?
1: There are definitely a few of those in Austin. Most of these restaurants that I've talked about, their wine list and their food, have a bar. It's actually rare for there to be a restaurant that doesn't have a bar that you can just go sit and have a drink at as well. In fact, I would say that the majority of restaurants in Austin, I would feel 100% comfortable walking into, sitting at the bar, ordering a glass of wine, and leaving. And another fun part of doing what I do is being able to say i'm going to have a glass here i'm going to go to a down their spot i'm going to have a glass maybe a bite and the ability to hit a few spots in a night and then and still not be super hammered
0: but it's important to be out there in terms of sales you need to in- visit the places incredibly
1: incredibly important
0: it's a camaraderie business
1: it is it's a relationship business without a no doubt and i will even go and have a glass or spend time at a bar and a restaurant that isn't technically my account because it's building that community, building those relationships with people that are doing the same thing that you're doing just in a different part of the industry and knowing what's going on with them, knowing what they're excited about, what's on their list, what they've tasted and vice versa.
0: And what else has been sort of a key thing that you do? What's important to your, your job to get done? in a day or in a week or in a month? What are the things that have to happen?
1: There's definitely a level of admin work and email that goes into my day to day, but I try to limit it as much as possible because while it's necessary, while I need to sit down every morning and sometimes at night as well to answer emails and, and do this paperwork. If I'm not out With my buyers, if I'm not out with a bag of wine or sitting at a bar and talking about wine, drinking wine, eating people's food, understanding what's going on in the industry, that's the most important part of my job. So as little time as I can spend in front of my computer, the better, even though it's unfortunately necessary.
0: Does Austin attract uh, tourists or people from out of town come to Austin?
1: Absolutely. It's the state capital. So that's a big part of it. University of Texas being there is a huge part. It's the live musical capital of the country. So that's probably the biggest draw for people as far as tourism goes. There's live music every night, and a lot of it is free. Honestly, if I didn't feel like seeing accounts, I could go drink Lone Star and watch live music every night if I wanted to. And... It's fun to be able to mix up being out in that way.
0: And what do you think people from out of town don't understand about the Austin wine scene?
1: Austin is obviously known as being a little bit of a different city than most other Texas cities just because it's more liberal, it's younger, it has more energy, it has all of this live music, of course. But I still think that there is a, bit of a stereotype as far as wine and food goes because we are in texas the steakhouse culture is alive and well in austin it's bigger in other cities but we still have our dark high ceiling cold mahogany napa cabernet driven steakhouses in austin and don't get me wrong sometimes i really love doing that it's a lot of fun to do But there is so much more going on. We're getting a lot more exposure. If you look at the people writing about wine and food for the country, Food & Wine magazine, Bon Appetit magazine, Savoir, blogs, even publications like the New York Times are focusing on Austin more than they ever have before, and that's exciting. And I think it's allowing people to see that there's more going on. We are experimenting with food in ways that only cities like Chicago, LA, San Fran, New York have ever done before. And we are therefore attracting talent in ways that Texas has never done before. People are moving here from those cities to work.
0: To open restaurants. Right. But what about attracting talent within Texas for sommiers? Does the more adventurous young sommier want to move to Austin to deal with wines that are a little bit off the beaten pack as
1: far as sommeliers go i don't think that we're there yet because we don't have access to wines like the other big cities do i honestly believe that once we have the ability to bring any wine that you could get in another big city to austin I think that's when we will start to maybe attract the sommelier talent into the city right now. It's more chef talent that's moving and we're taking the sommeliers that are already in Austin and they're learning and developing and growing and moving forward.
0: seems like a lot of changes have happened in Austin in say five years, certainly 10 years. If you had to look five years out from now or 10 years out from now, How do you envision that scene looking like on the wine side? What's it going to look like?
1: I've actually seen a shift more so just in the last year. These buyers saying, I've wanted wines from this producer before. So instead of just trying to get the wines, I'm going to reach out to them and also say, hey, and why don't you come to Austin? Why don't you do a tasting? Why don't you do a dinner like Or even just a seminar with our staff. We're going to buy your wine, come in, talk to them, tell them about what you do because it makes such a difference to get that kind of information firsthand. It's nothing like having that firsthand experience with a winemaker.
0: So a, a young person were coming up. They got along well with people. They were really interested in learning more about wine. And they came to you and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about Austin thinking about trying to make a a go out of it, maybe in restaurants, maybe in distribution, what would be what you would tell them?
1: First, I would ask if they were interested in being in restaurants or if they wanted to be in sales, because it's two totally different worlds. Even though we're working together, it is two totally different career paths. And if they wanted to be in restaurants, I would steer them towards working in a restaurant that had a sommelier that was really invested, not only in their program, of course, but also in education. Because through that, not only are you learning from them, but then you have the opportunity to interact with them and grow within that restaurant group. And I've seen a friend of mine was a barback at a restaurant in Austin and is now helping to run the beverage program at that same restaurant. And this has all happened within a few years because he took a vested interest in what was going on with the wine program. And so even if it was starting with, tell me about this wine, or can we sit down and talk about these new wines you put on or the program you're putting together? And so the idea of education is really big with a lot of these buyers. And so if somebody wanted to come in and come up in the industry in Austin, that's where I would steer them as far as restaurants go. As far as distribution goes, the city is growing in such a rapid rate, not just with population but with restaurants in general, that distribution is also growing. Every distributor I feel as though is always hiring. And there are opportunities popping up all the time. So it's just a matter of positioning yourself in a place where you're showcasing your passion and you're telling people where you want to be and what you want to do and just hammering at it. Always want to be learning. Always be asking questions. Always be tasting and interacting with the people that are already growing this industry.
0: Corinne Jackson, she's seen personal growth and professional growth in the wine scene in Austin. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Corinne Jackson of the Glacier's Fine Wine Distribution in Austin, Texas. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.